This episode is made possible by Armoire. I love genius companies founded by women, and Armoire is one of them. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days, and then when you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. To me, Armoire Armoire solves so many issues I struggle with today, the biggest one being accumulation of stuff. Let's face it, women want to feel on trend and fresh in their clothes, so we like to shop for new clothes often. But I also get overwhelmed when I have too much to choose from, which happens after years of shopping. I forget what clothes I have and I end up wearing the same thing over and over. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion and then send it back. Whether you're planning your outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to brave a department store fitting room with those unflattering fluorescent lights again. Trust me, your overly cramped closet and the environment will thank you. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash heel. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash heel to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the HEAL Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gorris, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is, what's possible for one is possible for all. And I've discovered on my journey that so much more is possible than we can begin to imagine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Heal Podcast. I am so excited to be here today because I we are going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, saving the planet. Excellent. And saving ourselves. And I have two brilliant, beautiful souls here to help us understand the urgency without putting us into a state of panic um, and instilling us with hope. I have Dr. Zach Bush, one of my bestest friends <laughs> on this journey and author, artist, surfer, musician, amazing human, Alex Woodward. He's the author of Ordinary Soil, which is a, it's a novel, it's historical fiction, which we kind of like to call faction. Yep. And he's here to tell us why. So guys, welcome. 
so glad to be with you and all of you on the Heal podcast. Uh, what what an incredible movement you guys have created in this world. So honoring each of you for being part of that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So first, I guess I just want to understand how you two came together. Zach, you started, you know, Farmer's Footprint, right? And, yeah. and got me involved in this passion for understanding how um, there's this need to regenerate and switch our farming model from conventional, which is killing all the nutrition in our soil, um, and turns out killing the souls of our farmers, um, and, and switch to this regenerative model and how to do so and supporting farmers in doing that. And so how did you guys come together to you know, tell it, the story? It sounds like the start of a Gilligan's Island episode, <laughs> I guess, but we were uh, both on a small island in Fiji. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, which nobody really knew was a pandemic yet. It hadn't gotten to that point, which is why we were in Fiji. Uh, and while we were there, I think California shut down and everybody started looking at each other like, what's happening? And Zach was on the island and he had introduced himself to me as the medic. And I didn't know Zach at the time, but he had said he was the medic. And uh, he offered for the eight or 10 people on the island to like tell us what this coronavirus thing was if we wanted to know. And we're like, well, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. So Zach gets up and just starts talking about the virus and what's gonna happen and these are the stages. And I mean, in, in retrospect, he was right about it all. Uh, and I was watching him going, this guy's more than a medic. Like, <laughs> this, there's something else happening here. And so from that conversation about what the virus was, he went into what he was doing now and where, what his focus was. Um, and that kind of got me interested in his path. And I got home, we t I got a repatriation flight back to LA here and I looked him up and the first thing I saw about him was this video, I think it was a, it was a conversation with Rich Roll that you had had mm -hmm. about the history of chemical and mechanical farming which doesn't sound particularly sexy, right? Mm -hmm. But it was this animated story, basically, that I found like incredibly interesting because I didn't know, like I didn't, it was, Zach wasn't, you know, there wasn't any opinions in there. There was nothing like that. It was just like, well, this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it was fascinating to me. Um, and he and I had a couple friends in common and had a few little kismet things go down uh, on Fiji. So we kind of, you know, exchanged each other's info and I had this idea, I was on the big island one morning, I woke up and it was pre-dawn, it was dark, I went running and came back and thought, man, you know, that, that story, that history needs to be told in a, a broader, like fictional way. Like, and, and that's something I could do, you know? I was trying to figure out how I could communicate his message to a broader audience mm -hmm. and that's, that's what I could do. I could write that story, I thought. So I did this little one page synopsis basically and sent it to him and he responded with basically all right and that started the that particular journey which became you know a novel it started out as a novella which is like a twenty-five thousand word thing and uh i got enough input where it was suggested to make it into a novel which is what you're holding there so that's how he and i ended up meeting amazing yeah and it's a little bit of just that tie of you know the way in which synchronicities happen in life when we look back through life and you're just so glad you can't write your own future because you would write such a boring future right and so i, I find that just compelling that the people that are brought into our lives or perhaps our higher selves bring into our lives for us are just 
the most unexpected gifts and it's just been an unexpected gift to watch you know 15 years of my life on the kind of outside of academia and then also the the 17 years in academia that 32 year journey suddenly be turned into you know a mirror in which i can see it not through my my own life but through the lives of these farmers that are depicted in the in the book and there's something really extraordinary about that experience i think it can I wasn't sure what to expect when he was like, I want to fictionalize your life. I'm like, right. well, thank God it's going to be fiction because nobody <laughs> wants to know the real story there. Right. But but on, on the flip side, what you, I think you experience as somebody watching kind of that whole tapestry unfold is just a reminder that we can't actually measure or predict why something's happening to us because we are part of a system that is one biologic entity ultimately. And so as my life story became just a single little cell within this greater organism of ordinary soil, it's just a beautiful way of remembering that for all of the intensity of being alive in a lifetime, going through the ups and downs emotionally and everything else, that you can't even believe the beauty that's unfolding at the human level uh, through all of these stories that web together, all the lives that are teased out. And so just an encouragement to all of us in the holiday season here is, as we start to look at our own lives and our interactions with immediate family or extended family and we start to you know question like does anybody see me does anybody am i real does anybody actually understand me because here's the people that i'm supposed to be closest to and that's most often the ones you feel most estranged from because there's just an, a misunderstanding of who you've become because they're living a remembered version of you mm. and to find out in this journey with alex of like holy smokes i do that to myself I'm living in my mind a remembered version of myself and forget that I'm a present being. And that present being is, is part of this tapestry of life, the single organism of humanity. And so it's been a humbling journey a lot. Thank you for looking through that. And you know, it's taken me quite a while to get through the book because it's pretty triggering mm -hmm. because it brings up so much of the trauma of the stuff I've seen in my patients and in my own life and all of that. That first chapter as it kicks off, like. If anybody wants to, to rivet your family or some friend that doesn't think they care about the food system, give them the book because you're gonna, you're gonna get them hooked on, on chapter one there of just how potent it is when a human being, sentient, intelligent, decides it's time for them to take their own lives. That, that point of depression and suicidality is such an incredible lens into the human condition. Mm. And I think the, that the book starts there and then pulls us back into this much bigger story of how how is it that we are bringing you know our farmers and physicians to five times the suicide rates of any other industry out there and, and i think it's because we we start living these artificial realities within the matrix there and for that we lose our sense of connection to, to soul which is another way of saying connection to nature and so that's a little bit of the journey that i've had with alex is the the pain of seeing a life and the beauty of seeing that life expressed in a larger organism Oh my gosh, it's so yeah. heavy, but here we are. And, you know, so many of us, it's just, it's wild how everything, it's just an intense time. It's It's been like, we're all aware of how intense it's been since COVID, I think. And it just keeps getting more intense. And I think that every generation has had an intense time, you know. Like of course. It's probably yeah. less intense than World War II, I would imagine. Um, so there's, you know, every generation has this struggle and, and you know, going through the gauntlet. And um, but I've heard you say before, like we're we're in the sixth 
we're like at the end of the sixth extinction. Like it's it's imminent, right? And when I and, and I think that it's so overwhelming, whether we're talking about climate change, um, you know, societal breakdown, like everything that we're seeing unfold that's causing this pressure and intensity and, and pain that people are escaping in so many ways, whether it's to the extreme of suicide or numbing themselves through any given habit or pharmaceutical. And it's just too intense to feel and we're never taught to feel. Mm. And so in that, I don't want, like, I, I, I want this conversation to be about delivering, like turning the light on, and which is what you guys did with Ordinary Soul Hill, like in a, in a factional way, in a right. historical fiction way, telling the truth in mm. a dressed in story in these beautiful characters, but th this is really happening in life right. and it's giving all the elements in the history so that we get the full picture so that we can make changes. So I want this conversation today to wake people up and then also give us like tools forward so there is hope no matter what the outcome is. Like the time is now that we have to make change. This is the history, this is what's happening. This is what we can do going forward. And just, you, you're so brilliant, Zach, in the way that you do kind of give philosophy and science mixed together. And um, it's so hopeful. And that your capacity to explain <laughs> things and, and your knowledge, like I asked you once, I was like, how do you know what you know? And how do you share it in such an articulate, brilliant way? And you're like, well, I've been taking my product much longer <laughs> than anybody else. And I'm like, okay, ordering Ion Biome yeah, today. Right. Um, so yeah. that's the goal today. I'll let you start and kind of, I just feel like my audience would love just the history of how we got here. Yeah. Um, and where do we go from here yeah. in a general sense? The book does a great job of, of de-demonizing the journey, I think, because as you take a look at history, it's easy to demonize companies or corporations or ideas or technology as the problem. But what you'll see, you know, on the human journey that's tangled in the book, as well as in my own you know, life story, is that we together as a human organism have created everything that the human society has expressed. And so we have to remember that Monsanto or a Bayer or you know any pharmaceutical company, these are abstract creations that we've all participated in. And the separation from nature that we see echoed through much of our technology and the fear and guilt and shame around nature, fear of nature, and then the guilt and shame about what we did to nature when we were afraid of it. You know, so this, this triangulation between fear, guilt, and shame and this, you know, rejection from nature, I think, is really at the root core of why we are we have become this existential threat of, of extinction. And so if you back all the way up to the very first chapter of almost any religious text, there's going to be some version of, we got kicked out of the garden. And it was because of, you know, this leap in consciousness, basically, is that we suddenly saw ourselves separate from nature and we got embarrassed. And so we, we had this shame and we hid ourselves and we hid our bodies. We were ashamed of body. We were ashamed of this and we left the garden. And it's interesting that it's, that it's a plant that is described as mm. doing that. Like we ate from the apple or there was, you know, some other God intervened or whatever it is. But for me, I think it's fascinating to think that it could be as simple as a plant, you know, in that in the same way that we see plant medicine reconnecting people to the sense of source, it wouldn't be surprising to me if we suddenly had a neurologic experience 
that gave us a sudden break in our sense of connectedness to nature. And it could have been something we ingested. It could have been a change in the microflora within us. We now know that the microbiome within our gut expresses the reality that we live. And that's very trippy to think that this is not really a human brain. This is a human brain sensing all of the reality of, of the microbiome, typing the information into my keyboard, which is my gut lining. So I've got hundreds of thousands of species in me that are speaking through me right now. And so if I express something like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking separate from nature, was that actually a loss of, uh, of connectivity through the gut? And it's possible that we, through ingestion or through some sort of shift in the environment, we lost connection to some significant workforce within our gut. Humans have been around like 300,000 years, uh, which is a big jump. We thought it was 200,000 years up until really the past year, and then suddenly some breakthroughs were made in uh, both in, in the anthropology and archaeology as well as in the you know, carbon dating and sciences. But we're suddenly looking at a 300,000-year history of humans, and yet we only really have 100,000 of that recorded. And so we have the Khoisan people of Africa have got a 100,000-year oral history. The Aboriginal people's about a 40,000-year history. Some people would find some of those tribes maybe as far back as 80,000. Amazon rainforest, 40,000 years. So what happened to the other 240,000 years? What happened to that other 200,000 years before the Khoisan in Africa? Where did that history get lost? And it wouldn't surprise me if there was a journey to a loss of connectivity rather than, you know, we just got smarter all the time. Mm. I think there's been demonstration that we've actually had a decrement in capacity with whatever you know biology we're expressing on the planet. We certainly can't build the pyramids, we can't do a lot of the technologies that we see happening 12,000 years ago. So even as short back as 12,000 years ago, we've lost our, our, our knowledge base. We've lost connection to a knowingness much bigger than what we express currently in our technologies. So if you keep peeling that back, was our original birth as a species much more grand in some ways than what we express today? And has this extinction event that we're currently living into actually been unfolding since our beginning because it began with a, a breaking of our relationship with nature which could date back 80,000 years could be date back 12,000 years could be date back 300,000 years but somewhere along that journey we broke the relationship the beautiful thing that we're in though is an extinction and the reason why that's so beautiful is nature loves extinction events because death is the most revered you know event that happens in the organic patterns of life because at every death there comes a million new opportunities for life and we may have talked about the oak tree before but the oak falls in the forest you genetically sequence its its trunk it's one species oak one year later after its death it's a hundred thousand species sitting on the forest floor uh, within that same trunk and so if we can go a hundred thousand x in our expression of life through the death of an oak tree what are we going to do as a human species? What's going to come after us? The dinosaurs did something pretty amazing. Dinosaurs, reptiles, expressed birds, expressed mammals, expressed humans. And so the expression of a genome when it goes under stress is all kinds of new opportunities. And so as we speak here, as we put this planet under great stress, our breath is already carrying the genetic potential and the beauty of the future that we can't even imagine. The dinosaurs, I don't think, could have imagined what would come next, but they participated in its creation through the mechanism of life within them. Life is always striving for this explosion of beauty, biodiversity, and through that biodiversity and beauty, intelligence. And so something much greater than our current expression of humanity is going to be there. 
And from an anthropocentric kind of human standpoint, gosh, it'd be nice if it's still Alex and I out surfing in 50 years mm -hmm. and we're still in human body and the extinction didn't happen. But if it does happen, something grander is nature's going to redo something much grander than we can imagine. But I do love my experience in hospice for the fact that 10% of people admitted to hospice with, you know, three weeks to three months to live kind of thing have to be discharged, you know, a year later because they didn't die. In fact, they became something new. And that's the code to all of healing. As you back up in my clinic, we tried lots of different modalities, we everything from ancient 9,000-year-old you know, traditions in, in nutrition on 5,000 year old acupuncture to, you know, thousand year old Reiki kind of stuff. And we tried new technologies, quantum things, vibrational plates, lights, that whole thing. And in the end, we found that the only way to really heal is to become something new, mm. let some rebirth happen within that organism. And a lot of that is a remembering rather than a reinvention of something that has never been. And so to remember your original math is to become completely healed. And we actually have a medical term for that that's used pretty often. It's called spontaneous remission. And the weird thing about spontaneous remission is there's no evidence the disease was ever there. And so it's not like, you know, you can have somebody with stage four cancer, metastases from their breast cancer into their bones, into their brain, scans are getting worse for two years. And then they go through an experience and they come back a couple weeks later and they're like, you know what, my headaches are gone and I actually kind of, I just start eating again. Like I'm kind of feeling good and I gained a few pounds and I think I'm, I'm actually doing pretty good. And the doctors are like, well, maybe we should do another scan and take a look. And then there is no evidence that that tumor was ever in the brain. There's no scar tissue. There's no hole. It simply became a rebirthed brain with the original math of what that brain had the potential to become. And it looked too bad for us to be putting miracle in the chart all the time. So we came up with the medical term spontaneous remission. Uh, and there's a CPT code for that. You can bill Medicare for spontaneous remissions. <laughs> and so spontaneous remission became the term that is the reality that we see this actually uncomfortably often in science where for no apparent reason, somebody goes through a complete rebirth inside the body without letting go, without dying. Mm. On the other side of that, every patient that crossed that threshold in my care, I watched them rebirth into something spectacular, you know, and oftentimes they would be back and forth across that veil in those last couple of minutes, hours, sometimes days, and they would tell you the most extraordinary things of what they were already experiencing on the other side of that reality, and then they'd come back to say, this is, this is not the real thing, the, the, the real thing is right on that other side. And so for me, I... I love this planet so much and, and the love for the beauty that we have on this planet grows on me all the time. And so I can get teared up with the possibility of leaving this planet behind or this planet going, you know, completing its extinction event and a human not having the opportunity to witness that next iteration. And that chokes me up appropriately. We should have a deep grief for that possibility. But we should also have a great expectation that that humanity as it crosses the veil is going to see the reality of the path we just walked and is going to see some sort of beauty in that path that we can't probably put together in this perspective. And there's that 10% likelihood that we are going to stay in the body and we're going to rebirth inside this human organism rather than have to release it to go the path of the dinosaurs and really become a new biology within ourselves. And that could be because we don't need to imagine a new species. We need to remember the species we were first designed to be. Oh my gosh. Well, we're done. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Alex and I are gonna go get lunch. We're gonna go get something to eat. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's so beautiful. And 
it's it's literally those are the options like we're going to go through a spontaneous remission of remembering who we are and the the disconnection from nature it will spontaneously be reconnected and that's it like we are diseased because we have disconnected ourselves from nature and like you said it's a collective it's we are an ecosystem we are we are a you know we are a collective humanity and consciousness and 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 with earth and microbes and all of you know, the flora and the fauna and the whole thing um so that alone is hopeful and we don't need it to is. know why or how i love you said it in another podcast that i heard and you just kind of touched on it but the truth the real truth is going to come through a remembrance not a discovery hmm. and like that. and that's been like my whole work recently it's just like remembering reconnecting to my own knowing and you know having these conversations and and being moved and then tuning in with okay what's what's my truth and the more you align with that inner truth the more vitality and ease and thriving and spontaneously healing it becomes a possibility in reality and these synchronicities and this beautiful dance so it's intense and it's painful but it's all bringing us back into that tr connection with the truth which is our self and our purpose of, of being here right. so alex like as you were writing this and as you were going on this journey and obviously there was clearly a remembrance when you guys mm -hmm. connected and right. there's you know i always play with like like you said is time actually going backwards were we the most advanced species 200,000 300,000 years yeah, ago and right. this is like the opportunity of like remembering back to that advanced intelligence mm -hmm. that there's no evidence of now but there's a remembrance um, I love that, just like the, the playing with time. So what did you remember? Like, what do you want to share about this journey of? Well, you know, there's, Zach has a beautiful way of like taking us all the way to the edge, right? And then bringing us back again, <laughs> you know? And, and like giving us some sense of, uh, of hope. And for me, you know, like he's, he, one of the characters in this book is loosely based on him. There's a doctor in there named Mark, right? And then there's a farmer. Um, named Jake, who's loosely based on another guy who we did an event with um, named Gail Fuller. And these are real people, right? And real stories. And the idea here is it's a very simple message, right? And, and it speaks more to the immediacy. No, not an existential thing as the immediacy of you get it out what you put in, in all things, right? In your relationships, in the soil, in your body, in your mind, you know, what you're listening to, what you're eating, like all that. Everything you're putting in affects what you're getting out. And that was like stripped down the, the main heart-driven message that I was going for in this book. So everything wraps around that, right? Everything wraps around this idea that, you know, you might feel like you don't have control, but you do, you know? Some of these big existential questions we don't feel like we have too much control over because we don't it's not up to us right but your existence right here sitting at this table mine too i mean we have a bit of more agency over that than than we think you know and it goes it's just so simple and it's it for me personally as i was writing this and doing all the research there's like 30 pages of nih studies back there in, in the back of the book i was just totally struck about how the simplicity of inputs affecting outputs, you know, it's just it goes for everything, you know. <laughs> totally. So you can make these, you can make a decision right now, you know, to stop 
I don't know, whatever, watching the news during dinner, whatever it might be, you know, and notice some really big impacts like immediately. Right. So for me with the book, I was trying to like communicate that, you know, that, that it's a collective thing, but a collective thing starts with an individual, right? It starts with all of us collectively making different decisions. And, uh, anyway, that's what I, what I was thinking about when I wrote this was just trying to tell that story of how, uh, like I said, in relationships, I think there's a lot of, uh, different dynamics in that book that show that whatever you're going to put in there, man, you're going to get back out. Mm-hmm. And it's very, it's as simple as a seed in the ground. Right. So, and I, yeah, go ahead. I think the one thing that you said earlier that really struck me, Kelly, is this idea of feeling the importance of being able to feel and we're losing the capacity to feel. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when a lot of our technologies are being created to palliate us not to feel, and I, I feel like what you've done in this book is largely remind us of the power of feeling in some ways. Yeah. And that remembrance, one of your characters is in fact an ancestor that's coming back through right. through the veil right. to report in. And so that that's right. that experience of remembering is, is not just from us, but it's also our ancestors that speak through us. And that happens literally at the genetics all the time. I'm, I'm an ancestral memory of the last 400 generations at least within me, if not you know much further back. Uh, and so foreign generations and maybe 10,000 years or something like that. So we got this incredible database of the remembrance of trauma, the remembrance of you know joy, the remembrance of love that comes reverberating through our cellular structure and it, we're expressing it all the time. Yeah. But the, this concept that Kelly throws out there is the, this capacity to feel is, is so potent. And I think that that's a lot of the healing you see in this book and that I've seen in my patients is when they come out of the numbed state of being abstract in their self-identity and start to core into actually being present right now, they suddenly start feeling life, which might be really freaking intense, but they're feeling it. Suddenly healing begins and this deep restoration of mental health, this deep restoration of physical health, this deep restoration mm-hmm. of spiritual you know, sense of identity or wellness starts to kick back in. What, and, and I found it interesting because there was times that we thought we were done with this book and then you'd call me a couple of months later and be like, oh man, this whole other thing is happening. I'm doing this thing. Yeah. And so, you know, you became a feeling agent for oh, this yeah, thing. And so sure. what was that? Talk a little bit about the feeling of your characters and the feeling within yourself that maybe translated in there. Yeah. So you make, you brought up a good point. So this book is like, I, when I was thinking about it as far as, you know, what it would feel like to read it, uh, I, I imagined Steinbeck meeting Stephen King in some bar someplace and <laughs> sitting down in the corner and like hashing this thing out, right? That's what I wanted to get out there. I want to be at that bar. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so what Zach was referring to is there is uh, like an ancestral ghost running through this book, right, that is all about the remembering. And as, as he just said, the, sometimes these, these characters, the main character, who's who's committing suicide isn't feeling a dang thing he's trying to feel as little as possible right sometimes the only way into that like into the heart is fear right and that that's fear is one of those things you can feel and that's what this ghost um sort of i don't know imparts on this character he kind of opens him up you know and we need sometimes uh, something drastic to open us up and so as zach just referred to also with this thing like I, I mentioned earlier, it was a small book initially. It was like 25,000 words. Um, and I was encouraged to, you know, keep going, develop the characters, that kind of thing. And I had never written anything like this before. And it was a total, and I'm not, you know, every, every 
author's got a different way of doing it. But for me, this thing was total stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like sitting down. I didn't know what was going to come. There were characters in this thing that did not exist. Like my favorite one character now is the brother of the farmer. He didn't exist in the first book at all. I don't even know where he came from. I was just sitting there and all of a sudden this guy was there, right, while I was writing. And that's the fun part of it for me. So I could get, you know, 50,000 words out. And of course, it's a bit of a mess because you're just writing as it's coming, right? Um, and you go back and edit and, you know, clean it up a little bit. But you, it's about, for me anyway, I, I was trying to just be a channel for whatever was coming through me, right? I didn't have any, aside from what I told you about inputs affecting outputs and that kind of thing, I didn't have any... Um, preconceived notions about these characters, what they were going to be, what they were going to do. I, the only thing I knew was the way it was going to end. I knew how it was going to end. And, and to that extent, I only I knew the scene. I knew what it looked like. Mm. I knew it was this group of people around a farm table in Oklahoma during a storm. I knew that. <laughs> that was it. And so everything else was just getting to that point. And so for me, it was really a heart-driven feeling kind of affair, right? Because I didn't have an agenda, you know? It's not like there's, like, I, it was it, the book's intentionally apolitical. Like, there is no, I don't even mention Monsanto, right? Mm -hmm. Or Bayer or any of these companies, kind of to what Zach was saying. There's no blame in this, mm -hmm. you know? I'm not saying that, I, I wrote it very intentionally in that sense. I didn't want to blame big corporations or blame, there, there's like one government guy I do kind of throw under the bus <laughs> named Earl Butts who deserves it but but um Earl. but yeah but past that um it was all about people doing the best they could with what they mm. knew right until you know better right mm. and once you know better you can start doing better um but these are all themes that came out after I was done you know when I went back and looked and said wow here we are you know so I love it I I'm Sitting here and, you know, just true confessions because that's what I'm supposed to be here showing up authentically. And for every podcast, if I know there's a book involved, like, of course, I read the book to prepare. And for whatever the reason, life and miscommunication, I didn't get a chance to read this book before sitting down with both of you, which like devastates me. But at the same time, I'm not going to where this or I am in my healing journey. It's like letting perfectionism go and really allowing and being OK with how things unfold. So there's no stress and really. Being I mean, I almost left. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> He's secretly pissed. He's like, why am I here? No, but like to, to have that unknown and knowing I'm going to read the book, I'm like, amped. Right. Um, but to start to be comfortable with the unknown and mm -hmm. to be like to to trust to get reconnected with the awe and the beauty of life and nature and how this is unfolding even with the pain the pain is the fire that alchemizes all you know us into the the gold or whatever you know precious metal we are um but and and just for you to even have that process of like i, I got hit with this vision this mm -hmm. end scene i'm passionate about what Zach brought my attention to. Mm -hmm. I want to learn more about it. As I learn more, I don't know. I've never done this before, but I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be open right. and let it flow through right. me. So there's so much about, I just like want my listeners to be okay a little bit, like go for the ride and be in the unknown, you yeah. know? Oh yeah. I mean, I, when I like on the singer songwriter side of things, I mean, we talked about this before in other contexts, like for me, I pick up a guitar and I just kind of start playing around. And a, and a word will come sometimes, right? And I'll just kind of hang on to that word and then a melody will kind of go over that or whatever. And I'll just mess with it until it becomes something, 
and then you start shaping it into you know what it ends up being right and for a lot of people that's such a foreign idea right you have to have a plan you have mm-hmm. to have like wait there's a structure and there's this and this and this mm-hmm. and this and the most beautiful things happen when there isn't a plan you know but you're putting yourself out there you still need to put yourself out there you still need to open up creatively whatever that looks like for you you know you don't have to be an author or a you know an artist or a painter or whatever it's it's how you're living right we're talking about living a creative life and that is really hard for some people to wrap their heads around you know because we're so programmed to have you know one plus one equals two all the time mm-hmm. and it just doesn't can i say something too about that like you, that individuality and that comfort in your own process and like yes we can watch a master class on songwriting and and learn something but ultimately like we are this macrobiome or microbiome like mm-hmm. we are all part of these individually beautiful beautiful souls seven and whatever 8.8 billion souls on the planet and everyone has a unique perception of life unique gifts that come in and you know then we come into orchestra with the people we come in contact with in our community and i would love you to talk about just that macro idea of biodiversity versus monoculture Mm -hmm. and how we're losing our individuality until like we need to come back to that truth of ourselves and like we become diseased when we go off the path of our own true nature too. Sure, yeah, it's all well said. Yeah, I think one thing that we find in human behavior is that uh, a three-year-old or four-year-old child, you're blessed with a four-year-old child right now, and, and when you see your daughter wake up in the morning, there is no plan for the day. It, it's, it, it unfolds in her own active feeling and imagination of the reality she's in and so she's imagining the next moment into its reality every second and I distinctly remember four years old because I had these two amazing friends and my parents referred to them as these imaginary friends because they couldn't see them and so I wonder how much of that reality that we're missing as adults because we have tuned out of our capacity to see what's actually around us and what's actually the biodiversity around a child it would not surprise me if we had eyes to see that your four-year-old is surrounded by a pantheon of ancestors future and past that are interacting with her amazed by her capacity to be in both planes of existence across the veil of the human you know consciousness because it has not yet crystallized its egoic identity yet Mm -hmm. and so before that ego forms which is around age seven you know previous to age seven you've got this miraculous time frame of connectivity to the divine nature of everything the cosmic you know macro to that micro reality around you and when you see a child like go out into nature there's absolutely no question of its role there in nature or its place in nature and you know that kid who goes and jumps and stomps in the in, in the mud puddle as soon as he sees the mud puddle and the parents like what are you doing you're getting all wet it's the most obvious thing to that child in that moment at three years old that I need to be in that water right now and that water needs to be all over me because that's where, that's the that's the lifeblood right there. That's the fluid of reality right now is that puddle which came out of the sky moments ago and now lies in front of me and I'm, I can walk right into the essence of a cloud and jump in that. That child is seeing a connectivity and knowingness about its own self that we are then programmed out of. And so biodiversity, I think, you know, as a human experience is something we are born into. 
we know that we belong to all things at all times. We know that we are a connected being. And then we have that forgetting process between ages three and seven. And it's pretty steady on between those ages. It's just not like just a switch at seven. There's this constant build and certainly social programming around fifth, that five-year-old you know, transition into public schools is a really potent off switch to your creativity and your sense of connectivity because you're thrust into a, a very abstract environment where you're only around peers for eight hours a day. Like you're not around elders, you're not around you know, older kids to teach you what's going on. And suddenly you're in this monoculture completely at age five. And so our monoculture programming begins at those first social experiences and now, as you see that play out, we've decided elders should be monocultured into nursing homes at you know, 70, 75. Like, okay, you are no longer contributing to the GDP of our country, so we're going to put you in these facilities and we're going to have lots of activities for you so that you can not commit suicide being around a bunch of elders that are all decaying at the same rate. And so from kindergarten to the nursing home, we have created a society that expects and creates monoculture experiences, thinking that that's safety, thinking that that's somehow socialization. And I'm always amazed when people are like, your kids were homeschooled? Like, how did they socialize? Well, actually with people, <laughs> they, they actually sat down with adults and they could sit with you know as a teenager and they could have a conversation and they didn't learn to socialize only with a monotony of five-year-olds and so it's it's so potent to to watch our subconscious tendencies and behaviors as a society towards that monoculture and it's very obvious obviously in social media and everything else all the algorithms are reading you all the time and they're feeding you what you already believe and so you're reinforcing the monotony of your own belief system every time you flip open your Instagram or you, or for that matter, you just go browse Google or whatever it is. It's like the, the algorithms of AI are simply watching your behavior and your behavior happens to be one program for monotony and monoculture. You are looking for people that agree with you. You are looking for the data that reinforces not only your belief systems, but reinforce and justify the way that you feel inside and don't want to tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking for the horror in the world to externalize a rationale or a reason for the why, reason you feel horrible inside. And so we are manifesting horrors on this planet at large scale for this microcosm of disconnect and, and mon monoculture within us. And so this is the disease that you speak to, is that we didn't just disconnect from nature. As soon as we disconnected from nature, we became afraid of everything that wasn't us, that wasn't the, the version of our abstract identity. And so we surrounded ourselves by enough inputs to reassure ourselves that this abstract identity is important and real and all that. But the soul doesn't doesn't agree with that. The soul doesn't feel anything for that abstract identity that we carry. I'm a mom. I'm a you know boss. I'm a you know employee. I'm you know disgruntled employee. I'm a happy employee. I love my products. I hate my products. All of it is all externalized. The fact is, you are a light being that has, for a moment, for a finite moment, expressed itself in the human biology. And in that, it has the opportunity to tap into eons of information that sit at your literal fingertips of, the, of your cosmic identity. That soul that we might define is, is trying to express it through this finite moment. And the finite moment tries to keep judging the soul, if you will, by its abstract experience of monoculture. So this is where we find the regenerative story so compelling. And there's already you know, a book in the, in the making in this man's you know, feeling this right now 
that is the obvious follow-up to this book, which is once you are in the wound, once you can actually start to feel the pain and start to understand how the pain came to be, healing just automatically happens. Mm. And one thing that I love was, you know, came out of one of my colleagues in, in the uh, chiropractic world, but he was in a deep, deep ceremony meditation and came back with this information that within every wound is the antidote. And if you keep trying to cover up the wound, you can't find the antidote. Mm. And so what's going to unfold as the, the story moves on beyond the first chapter here of Ordinary Soil, you're going to find out that the antidote for humanity is actually within the pain of our separation from nature, our pain of our separation into monoculture theism, monoculture you know, society, monoculture companies, monoculture products, monoculture behaviors. All of those are creating great pain because they are a, they're basically the, the refined sugar of our reality, right? It's highly processed, you know, drugs that we are creating in that kind of abstract identity so that we can somehow dull the pain of our disconnect between our soul beauty and this, you know, somewhat frail and, and decaying external identity. As soon as you tap into nature, as soon as you say, oh my God, I, this is where I'm from. I'm not from my parents. I am from something deeper than I may have come through my parents. I may have come through that vehicle. I may have come through that vessel of my mother's womb. I may have self-organized 70 trillion human cells in my mother's womb, which is pretty freaking trippy, weird thing. <laughs> but I may have done that and I may be here right now, but I didn't come from my mother. There's no way that her body knew how to make me. It didn't know. And so I have become something in my mother. And for me as a parent, the most humbling thing in the world was having that second kid because I just thought I was an amazing parent and created amazing beings. And then the <laughs> second kid came along, I'm like, oh my God, I have nothing to do with this situation at all. <laughs> it's like so shocking that you have nothing to do with this because it sure feels like it's coming from you. And then it happens, it's like, no, this is, this is an ancient being coming through this, this avenue. And then we do everything we can to make sure that it believes it's from us by the time that it's age five. You know, you are your mother's daughter, you are your father's son. And we program these things in there subconsciously, unfortunately, and, and consciously in our weakest moments. But it's just such a beauty thing, ultimately, to, to tap in just for a second. And the first instinct that happens when you actually see yourself in the eyes of nature is you want diversity. You want more diverse experiences. You want to taste something that you haven't tasted in a long time. You remember the taste of the salad that your grandmother used to serve you. You remember what a tomato tasted off her vine in the backyard, and suddenly you want that. And, and that's this, this potency, I think, of as soon as you are willing to recognize how beautiful you are you are going to crave and create diversity in every thought you have in this you know in the company you keep in the perspectives you want to hear from you're going to want enrichment and and anytime you step back towards the monoculture you spend all those decades in you're going to have an anaphylactic kind of reaction to it just like a smoker who stops smoking is just like i can't stand that smell of smoke when you stop believing you're the thing outside of yourself and you allow yourself to become the thing inside of yourself, you will immediately desire and then therefore create the very environment that will feed you into your, your most potent version of yourself. What he's really saying <laughs> is get outside and reconnect yeah. to nature. Like, Talk about your surfing. I mean, yeah, it's the same. It is like, I mean, this guy has the most beautiful way of putting things that, you know, 
that that's why I wanted to tell this partly his story in here, right? Is because I, I so like deeply believe more people need to hear it in a way they can hear it, right? Not everybody's going to be watching this podcast. Not everybody's going to see you in a seminar. Like not everyone is open mm -hmm. to those kinds of things, but people are open to stories, you know? And this the separation from nature is everything. Mm -hmm. Like that, it is huge, right? Uh, we were talking earlier about how you know, in most of our cultures in burial, we we put people in caskets and put them in the ground, right? Because we're so afraid of nature getting in there. We're sh we're so afraid of those the the decay and the the dirt and the worms and all this beautiful stuff that's in the earth getting into our bodies, right? Because we have such a huge separation from nature problem, right? It's mm -hmm. it's incredible, and so I think that. Um, for me anyway, you know, like Zach said, I'm in the water most days and I know, I mean, there's a lot of joy there. That's part of it for me. But as I was telling him earlier, like I come out a better person than I went in mm. and I'm not really sure why, you know, I, I mean, I can say it's because of the joy or I can say it's because of the cold water and you know, whatever that's doing to my immune system or whatever, but there's something else going on, mm -hmm. right? There's a reason that I'm not the only one out there also. And so that's something that I think Zach can speak to more eloquently because that is, you know, that's, that's the opposite of separation, right? That's immersion. Like you're in it. Like I'm, I'm in that water, right? I'm getting, it's going up my nose. It's like all over the place. Right. And so I think that's something that Zach could speak to. Um, and maybe you got some thoughts about how people can, uh, integrate that into their own lives that don't have, the ocean right there mm -hmm. that don't have, you know, even a park nearby, like what, what they can do, you know, to yeah. like kind of reignite that, that connection to nature. I'm always on a mission to find things that help me look and feel more vibrant and young from the inside out. Well, I found an incredible new bioactive whole food that does all that and more. It's called Armra. Armor Colostrum is not just any supplement. It's a powerhouse whole food of over 400 functional nutrients that has completely transformed my daily routine for optimal health. Armra strengthens immunity, which is super important in this winter season, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, activates hair growth, enhances skin radiance, and powers fitness and recovery. It literally addresses all my concerns and desires. In the short time I've been using Amra, I'm already noticing a brighter glow and more elasticity to my skin, healthier and faster growing hair, and more energy when I work out. Oh, and it's sustainably sourced, which you know is super important to me. We've worked out a special offer for my audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash heal or enter heal to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash heal. Did you know that 93% of kids don't eat enough fruits and vegetables? 93%. Luckily, there is Haya, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya is made from a blend of 12 farm-fresh fruits and veggies and supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals that help support a healthy immune system, energy levels, brain function, mood, teeth, bones, and more. The truth is, most kids' vitamins are just candy in disguise, packed with sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and gummy junk that no kid should ever ingest. Haya 
vitamins are not only zero sugar and zero gummy junk, they're non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, and nut-free, and they're manufactured in the USA. My daughter Riley loves Haya because they come in these cute reusable glass jars with stickers for her to decorate. And I love Haya because they send a no-plastic refill pouch every month with fresh vitamins. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash heal. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash heal and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Before you go on that, like you said, <clears throat> you know, the, just to expand on this biodiversity and, and monoculture thing, because I, I originally wanted to talk about it because, you know, we have this general sense you've been in the microbiome science world for 15 years about and you have this amazing supplement um that's you know air quotes a probiotic but it's bringing those amazing um i mean you could explain it but there's no you said there's no good or bad bacteria it's either biodiverse you have a biodiverse gut with everything's kind of working in balance and harmony because there's all these different species or there's a monoculture and an imbalance. Yeah. Um, and then the same with like, just like you said, as you become more alive, as you become aware of the wound, as you as you as you discover that that pain is inevitable and not to avoid shut down, but actually the antidote is in the wound. And you know, suffering is optional. I'm just going on all these little yeah. <laughs> quotes right now. <laughs> but like, you crave more biodiversity of information too. And so, you, like watching Fox only Fox or watching CNN or following only these people that agree with you, that's a monoculture. And we need to start, you know, so I guess just talk about that in relation to the soil and what mm -hmm. has happened to our soil mm -hmm. um, as it relates to, you know, biodiversity versus monoculture and how it's. Yeah. So this is that uh, harkens to this uh, animation video that kind of hooked Alex into this book project, but uh, After School is an incredible project by incredible artists, and he picks these you know monologues at, or discussions out of podcasts or whatever, and then he animates them. and And the story that is animated there, if you type in Zach Bush After School, you can watch this twenty two minutes, I think it is. And what it basically depicts is is the journey of the soil over the last fifty years. And interestingly, I can't, I don't think it's depicted in that portion well but the soil within our gut has now been recognized to really be identical in function structure etc to the soil that we would see beneath our feet or in the garden and so when we talk about soil we're talking about your gut as much as we are the backyard garden so what's happened over those 50 years and maybe you have to go back maybe 80 years to really kind of dig in deep on it but what happened is we started to get addicted to the antibiotic methodology of trying to make biologic space for one species to occur and so we started beating back weeds and we started beating back, you know, other bugs and things like that that seemed to be competing for the biologic space of a crop that we put in the ground, corn, soybean, whatever it is. And so we thought we were battling against nature and we needed to kill nature so it could be there. All nature was trying to do was trying to correct a monoculture. Nature abhors monoculture. It will do whatever it takes to destroy a monoculture plant. And that can be in the cornfield, but it can also be in our neighborhoods. Like the, it's the specific elm that got planted all over the suburbs of America. And now, of course, we have this elm, you know, 
blight that's killing elms all over the the country and you know people are trying to come up with more and more inventive chemicals to spray the elm trees to to keep this you know this uh, i think it's the woolly that's in there but this little creature that's you know wiping out the elms that were monocultured into our streetscapes and so anytime nature sees one species dominating its immediate instinct is like that's not good that we need more diversity in here and it's going to do whatever it does to remodel that and we did that not only in the soils around our yards and everything else, we did it in our gut with the antibiotic era in the 1940s coming out of World War II, penicillin being the first one. And pretty soon after 1945 and 1975, 30 years of antibiotics, we suddenly realized, wow, we're really wiping out like the whole digestive system of Americans and we're, our health is failing. Uh, we, we need to get some bacteria in there. So which bacteria aren't bad for us? And so that was that kind of reductionist belief system that came in the 1970s. We're like, oh, these ones seem to correlate with, you know, good, good fermentation of like yogurt. So if it's good for yogurt, it must be good for humans. So we created the probiotic market where we would take three species of bacteria and put billions and billions of copies into a human gut over and over again every day for years and years and years. And we thought, wow, we're doing such good things. We're, we're planting all of these good bacteria, these three species of good bacteria. We didn't actually know at the time as a little bit of a defense here for, for the rationale of the 1970s, but we didn't realize that there was 40,000 species in an ideal human gut. We had no idea that the ecosystem was going to be that complex. Um, and so today, as we look back in time, we're like, oh my gosh, we thought three species was going to somehow <laughs> take us to 40,000. And we didn't realize that ecosystem diversity was the code for health of an immune system, was the code for health for an anti-cancer mission, and is the code for delivering nutrients to the body itself, all these things. So it was in that kind of myopic you know, belief of like, bacteria are bad, they cause infections, maybe there's a few good bacteria. At least open the door, I think that's what we could say for the probiotic industry, is they open the door to the possibility that we could embrace bacteria instead of just try to kill them. But it is ironic that as we created, you know, genetically modified crops and chemical agriculture as a whole kind of really developing in the 60s and 70s with the Green Revolution, it's and at the same time that we're saying, telling farmers, you know, stop having pigs and cows and all this stuff. Just have corn. Just one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so just have your one, one government official being like, you know what, we can make a commodity market out of that and we'll put you in an abstract marketplace and... Uh, we'll, we'll make you way more money. Go you can have 10,000 right? acres instead of your little 300-acre farm that your exactly. family's had for seven generations. Let's get you really wealthy and let's go big. At the same time, American consumers are told, you know, don't worry. Here's the three good bacteria. You know, so we're planting corn, bean, you know, corn, wheat, and soybeans out in the fields, and we're planting, you know, three species of bacillus in our guts. And for that, we find out that we created these really dumbed down systems and we failed in our nutrient delivery to the human gut and through the farm field to those plants. And for that, we became more and more dependent on the very antimicrobial environment that we had begun with. And so there's this vicious cycle between trying to do a few monocultures and then your increasing dependence on the antibiotics that keep reinforcing deeper and deeper versions of that. that. And so now we're at a position today where 4 billion pounds of Roundup or, or glyphosate are sprayed you know, every year, year in the world into our soils and water systems. And it's a water-soluble toxin, unfortunately, so it gets into the water table, into our rivers, 85% of the rain we breathe, 85% of the, the air we breathe and the rain that falls. And so we are really immersed in this chemical that has been patented as an antibiotic, antiparasite, antifungal, like it just kills organisms. And so as we create a planet that is no longer 
you know, supporting life at its fundamental foundation, we see life disappearing very quickly. And so we've engineered the sixth extinction, not by carbon dioxide. It's not fossil fuels that's causing the, the, the collapse of everything. It's actually antibiotics that are causing the clamps of everything. And most antibiotics by like a hundredfold are herbicides rather than, you know, antibiotics from your doctor. And so it's, it's a sterilization of this planet that's happening right now. And that's why we see a fundamental collapse of biology on the planet. And it's also beautiful that for every year that we put the pressure of extinction on there, there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, and there's more amino acids and nutrients that can't be accessed right now on the planet because of the death of the microbiome, but there's a bigger and bigger reservoir every year of that periodic chart that is going to be remobilized when we take our knee off the neck of this planet and let it live. And when we decide that microbiome has a right to live and actually is our pathway to our own survival, and we stop the herbicide and pesticide movement, we will be dumbfounded at the beauty that's gonna burst out of this planet within a couple of years. And that's the fun thing about you know, these farm families. You're gonna to start to feel desperation for these farm families. They are so chasing their tail down the spinning you know, toilet here. That you're like, how can it possibly get better? How can they possibly survive? And then they just stop doing what they were doing to kill themselves for just a short period of time, mm -hmm. one season. And life just comes back in the most graceful way. And it's just so beautiful that nature, in her fabric of reality, nature has built in the grace for human fear, guilt, and shame behaviors that would drive us away from her. And she's just waiting patiently mm -hmm. here to welcome us back into the womb. And we are going to rebirth with such a magnificent potential because there's more carbon available for the you know the energy resources of the planet than it's ever been so we will have a greener more verdant planet than ever before and i think that could happen naturally within the next 300 years but with human ingenuity and aligning our efforts towards it i think in the next 30 years we could see north africa regreening saudi arabia regreening yeah, Siberia and northern China, one third of the planet could go green again. And as soon as that happens, the whole planet kicks back into its womb-like generative cycle. And we're going to see new species coming out of this planet, I think, in the next few decades if we do the right thing. And, and that gets me really goosebumpy fun. And that's like, wow, that's, that's when we realize we are part of the divine. We are a god force, not just a cancer on the planet. It's, it's a behavioral switch. It's a it's a change in perspective that takes us from being the malignancy on the planet to being the creator itself. And so that reminds me of those photos during COVID, right? When everything yes. was shut down, the planetary photos that showed you like the how, yeah, how quickly it happened, like how fast, right? Yeah. It's there. I mean, I've heard you say it before, like our capacity and the planet's capacity to heal is incredible mm -hmm. if we just let it. Yes. Right. We just have to allow it. Right. So. So I'm not saying shutting down, you know, people's jobs and everything was great for the pen. But like when you look at those photos of the planet, it was pretty special. It was remarkable. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think and there's an interesting statistic that's come out of the medical world, which is, uh, you know, and certainly not out of the allopathic medical world, but out of the, the more integrative medicine world, we've recognized that healing happens about 12 times faster than disease, which is cool because mm -hmm. you can just basically take the number of years it took you to get to your state of disease, whether it be your mental health or your physical cancer, whatever it is, take the number of years accumulated. A cancer takes about 25 years to really kind of develop mm -hmm. in its full potential. So 25 years, and then you switch years to months. And so it's going to take you 25 months to heal what you wow. developed in 25 years. So that's mm -hmm. just two years to solve for the 25-year wow. journey. And so if you start to really back up, like, when did we really divorce from nature? Let's say that was 5,000 years ago. 
what's 5,000 months, you know? Right. So that starts getting to be in my lifetime. Yeah. I can see, you know, something really happening pretty mm. profound. And so I get pretty excited about the possibility that I could live old enough to see a completely different planetary dynamic than has ever been expressed in 4 billion year history. And so if rebirth is that much around the corner, it makes me willing to be human for another day, which is going to be living the experience of disappointing all the people that I most care about around me, breaking hearts of the fact that I didn't quite get everybody's you know algorithm figured out and people are leaving the companies or people are doing something or other or I didn't make myself happy today or whatever it is. Like all the feelings that you're going to have in a day of being aware of reality are worth experiencing so that that little twinkle of possibility that I am going to be alive to see some new species of orchid come springing out of the, the forests of Virginia one day when I'm just like sitting there drinking my tea on the back porch at 95 years old and suddenly I'm going to be like, oh my God, what just came out of the soil? Yeah. And that's some new opportunity that was seen by nature right now when it was under its extinction stress already has imagined that next flower, has already imagined the next beautiful thing that will come forth from nature. And it would do that so that it could be witnessed. And, and I'm eager to witness. I'm eager to witness it. So we obviously need a biodiverse call to action because <laughs> not everybody's an activist, not everybody's an advocate, not everybody's going to go to Capitol Hill or wherever you go to, to battle the glyphosate mm -hmm. atrocity. Um, so what what can the individual, what can everybody listening to this, what are some things um, that can start to pivot us from the malignancy to the divine creators of this new, green, vibrant, beautiful, miraculous planet? Awesome. And self. And right. self. Yeah, it's all, that's, yeah. that's exactly like when I finished Heal, I was like, the, the planet is... A living organism and we right. are part of that we are all little cells uh, part of this vibrant living organism of planet earth and you know as it it shows us the way to heal right. and it's you know mother nature is is the model is the path so i love i love that you just said that well i i would go back to the whole inputs equal or affect outputs thing right and that's where i would start i think that Zach can maybe speak, I've heard him speak beautifully about um, making consumer decisions as investments, and I, I think he, he should talk about that. Uh, but for me, I think we all have, every, certainly most people listening to this podcast know what's better to be eating, to be drinking, to be watching, to be reading, right? We instinctively know. It's about opening up to that and listening to it and just trying, right? It's, it's the... It's almost like an experiment, you know? Experiment not reading news on your phone for a week, right? I did it. It was incredible the way that I started seeing my reality. It shifted completely. And that's just one small thing, right? Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, um, I would say that really adjusting your inputs to get the output that you want, we're all capable of it. We all know better, you know? We all like, I mean... I, I was driving through Idaho a couple of weeks ago and there was a McDonald's and it was like 10 o'clock at night. Nobody had eaten. The kid hadn't eaten. We were like, Mike, what are we going to do? Right? We knew better. We still did it. Right? <laughs> and so um, 
so the the point is that you know we we do have that awareness now you know it's not like we're in the 1970s and and it, mm. it, we're we're in a very which is exciting for me there's so much more knowledge out there that's based on like science and fact about what's going to be better for you personally as a you know individual what's going to be better for the planet what's better for you know us collectively it's all there mm -hmm. we just have to individually start tweaking some habits you know that that's what it's about to me but i'll let zach talk about the, the consumer mm -hmm. side as the investment that was a really great thing you brought up the other day yeah i think it's it's the, the that abstract identity we've most been handed in this modern culture is that of consumer and so we're we're told as an, an activist message you know go vote with your dollar you know and uh, what you buy is gonna really kind of change the reality you're in and that's true to some degree but if we only see ourselves as the consumer we can change the behavior of companies for our consumption we never go through a paradigm shift we, we may force their their portfolio of products to change slowly over time Nestle being an amazing example of it. The CEO of Nestle, Mark, came out recently and said, you know, 97% of the portfolio of Nestle's foods are bad for humans. And he kept his job, which is wow. kind of amazing. Uh, any other time in history, he would have been fired. But it means that the board and the executive teams at Nestle understand that they are going extinct as a company if they don't pivot because everybody realized that Nestle's products are bad for you and they are no longer interested in consuming it. So the consumer is changing Nestle very quickly now. But the question for me that kind of gets me excited rather than just thinking Nestle might go do a bunch of mergers and acquisitions to have a slightly healthier portfolio of products is what comes after Nestle. What would my children's generation invent when Nestle goes out of business? Because actually Nestle actually already knows that it can't pivot fast enough. It's going gonna, it's gonna to not be the biggest food company in the world in 10 years. And so it's, it's like it's going to follow the same path of all the other Fortune companies of the fortune 100 companies first named when that list came out there's only one left on the fortune 500 list and that's ge and it's like near the bottom of the fortune 500 companies all other 99 companies first named are gone because because they became too big to move they became too big to be alive and so they became a memory rather than a reality and they went out of business for that and so i am interested in creating a reality and creating a future now that makes obsolete all of the Fortune 500 companies. So what is that gonna look like? And that's what we're doing with Project Biome, which is if you wanna get engaged, you know, Project Biome is our global project of how does the earth become a living organism in which humans are no longer consumers, but investors. And we start pivoting this identity as consumers and we start investing every dollar for a future that could be now. And so if you're just gonna change your consumer dollar, you aren't taking the creative capacity that's within that dollar. That dollar can create the future now that is gonna make the whole you know, juggernaut of, of systems in place. And, and that includes you know, the big money of the world, central banks, you know, Blackstone, BlackRock, all the others. It, we can look at that as, as peoples and be like, well, that's all too big to change, obviously, because no, nobody's ever commanded that much wealth in history. And you got you know, three CEOs of three funds controlling one out of every $5 on the planet, like, well, that's unmovable, that can't, unless you become that creator who's gonna invest in a future that makes centralized power, centralized money obsolete because we found a decentralized identity of biodiversity within our home that then translated into a biodiverse community around us that no longer needed the abstract wealth of, of those corporations, and we found a different metric for value, a different metric for wealth, 
within our own souls, within our own families. That's, you know what, I actually don't need seven more zeros on the end of my bank account. What I need is to wake up and be seen by that tree. And that's what makes you a better person every time you come out of the water, I believe, is that it's not because you had some, you know, philosophical download every time you were out there in the water. It's because nature got to experience you. Mm. And when we look at each other as humans, we're looking at each other behind an egoic wall. And so the best thing I can be for you, Kelly, is a mirror. You're gonna see something beautiful about yourself, but I can't actually show you me because I've got this egoic wall that you can't see past. And the same for me. And I crave wanting to actually see who you are, but I can't because I'm too afraid to see past your egoic wall because that would mean I'd have to let mine down too. And so we are all staring at each other as humans, seeing either the best or the worst within each other and then we project all of that you know, at each other as if it's, it's the other person. But a tree has no ego. The ocean has no ego. And yet it's the same protoplasm of life that courses through your bloodstream. And so when you go into the ocean and it goes up your nose and you swallow it and you're in the wave and you're getting tossed to and fro, you are so intimately involved with that ocean, it is just caressing every single cell on your body and it is making love to you at that moment because it can see you. You are a bright, bright being because you are a multicellular creature that burns 10,000 times brighter than the sun and the ocean can feel that. Mm -hmm. The ocean can feel the blue whale within it and it's just like, it is the warmth of the sun coursing through it. Can imagine that blue whale deep in the cold ocean and the ocean is just like, just in ecstasy over this warmth of a mammal traveling deep through that ocean and saying, here's my light. Mm. I want to be seen. I can see you. You can see me. And as we spend more time in nature, we get to start to let down our own egoic wall between our own mind and our own true being. Mm. And you get to see a better version of yourself when you come out of the water because you were observed by a non-egoic reality. You were seen by <laughs> life. And so each of you can go out and start to experience this, like you said, and maybe you don't have an ocean right next to you, but you can go find a tree. And if you lay down under that tree, and it's easy for us to do the, the egoic protection version of nature, nature gazing, which is, oh my God, it's so beautiful. And I did that for the vast majority of my life. It was only like two years ago that I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not letting the tree see me. Hmm. And that was a reversal of my life. And I was you know, coming out of my, my little shell of, of of human relationships as my identity mm -hmm. of my self-worth is to be in human relationship and be in service to another human to realize I had shortcutted or, you know, completely eliminated the possibility that I could be in relationship with everything. Mm -hmm. And so I had allowed, you know, this human construct of, you know, there's a better half and you got to go find that person. You got to go serve that person, that, that nuclear family, which is probably really aptly named because, nuclear things tend to blow up but <laughs> but that nuclear family within this country um is has become so damaging not just for the damage we do to one another within these relationships but to the to the loss of all of the possibility of relationships to to the life and and reality around us and so make yourself vulnerable enough to be seen by the tree and you have to try it a few times if you're like me like i didn't immediately jump into like actually letting the oak see me because it's pretty intense to, to reverse that pattern because I want to just tell the oak how beautiful it is because I actually don't feel enough self-value to mm -hmm. be seen by the oak like it's embarrassing to be seen by the oak with waking up with my insecurities and my sense of self-worth to show that to a being that is so clearly never woken up a single sunrise doubting the fact that it's an oak 
doubting the fact that it has a critical role to play within its ecosystem. Undoubtedly knowing how beautiful its leaves are in the fall and the spring, the whole patterns of life death that it expresses. But as you start practicing that and being like, you know what, this is me, this is just me and I'm really confused and really lost right now and I can't actually feel the purpose within me anymore. And just, if you would just observe that, just feel, just look at this mess down here and you will come off of that ground a few minutes later with so much less weight on you because the tree saw you. And the observer effect in physics is freaking fascinating. As soon as a proton is seen, it becomes solid. And the moments before it's seen, it actually is displaying all of the potential pathways. It goes through all the slits at once. It goes through every direction through each of those slits. It is non-local. It's not actually here until it is seen. And so a scary thing is, is you've been given this precious life to experience and you're living it non-local because you're too afraid to be seen by anything. And when we're too afraid by seeing, we are non-local. We are not actually physically present. And that tree becomes that perfect observer that ocean becomes the perfect lover and suddenly we are immersed in witness Mm -hmm. the witness of nature to us and we are beautiful and we are exquisitely designed to be the vibrational purpose of this planet which is to know beauty and in knowing beauty we start to vibrate as a species in a very unique way we start to vibrate in the frequency of love and that's our purpose ultimately, is to be witness to beauty so that we will vibrate in this vibration. And when the ocean feels loved, it responds in dramatic fashions. And when the tree feels loved, we put EEGs on trees and plants now to find out that they can totally experience this. Mm-hmm. A tree will change its identity, change its expression of vibration when their, their person comes back towards home. I think what it was like a 20 kilometer area you, you come closer 20 kilometers to the plant that you water in the house mm-hmm. and that plant perks up when it can sense you within 20 kilometer circle wow. like that plant knows that it's about to be seen again and it becomes more real right. and so it's vibrantly responding to your witness to it and you walk through your house and you you may not even cognitively realize you're seeing the plants within it but the more aware you become that you are seeing the beauty and everything, you find out that nature has been waiting for one vessel, one species to be able to see it all so that it would vibrate in love with everything and somehow heighten the whole experience of the cosmos itself. So we're getting close. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like beaming, <laughs> smiling. It sounds great. I want to go like be seen by a tree. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Jump in the ocean. I never thought of it like that. Have you? Like being I, being seen by a tree or being seen by nature? I'm, I have not. I've, I've just been working on being seen by my loved ones. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, now I'm just going to, you know. Say, I'm just going to go find a tree. Be seen by a tree yeah. and then I can show up and just like be with my loved ones and not yeah. put so much pressure on them. Yeah, yeah totally. You know? The oak tree can handle it. Yeah, yeah right. Are, are my parents and my partner and my kids, like, they can't handle the pressure I'm putting on them to see me. It's like, yeah. no, just go be seen by the tree. Mm-hmm. Continue to, you know, get in alignment with that frequency of love, which is what we are. And, uh, you know, then you just show up and do your best. Yeah. And know that you're, you're, you're expressing 4,000 generations of trauma and separation, and that's not you either. Mm. That's just the expression of an ancient soul stepping into a biologic experience of being human, being separated from reality of the beauty of yourself. And so we got, if there's one permission slip we have to write today, it's to self of like, 
dude, I get it. Mm-hmm. You're not you. Everything you're feeling is reverberations of trauma in the past. And you have an opportunity to become so present that spontaneous remission occurs. Mm. And it's, it's in that presence of the tree. It's in completely feeling what it feels like to be a human expressing the 4,000 years of trauma or the 4,000 generations of trauma. As you start to become that present and you get witnessed, the spontaneous remission happens. And so that's the goal that we are all striving for now is there's no way we can linearly fix human relationships and all the marriages and all the kids and the wars and the traumas we're too close to the end to to go through any linear process of change now Mm -hmm. forgiveness all this we have to go into these cataclysmic transformations of spontaneous remissions of the human condition that we believed we saw separates from nature and so it's in that remembrance of who we are where we are through being witnessed by nature that we will find our path back in. And this book is gonna show you what happens to people as they get witnessed in even tiny ways, they start to, to, to re, rebirth. And you look into any story of a farmer who is now doing something completely different, is now you know, fostering soil health, and every day they wake up to wonder, where can I find more biodiversity to get into my farm rather than what can I kill today? Mm. That change in behavior is, I've seen all over the world, I've walked more farms than any other doctor in history. And with the thousands and thousands of farm tours, garden tours that I've done all over the world, people are so eager to show me all of the things they've put into little spaces. You know, look at, I've got seven species here, and I got another 14 species over here, and I got this thing over here. People are so excited and passionate about the diversity they didn't even know was possible just a year or two earlier. And so the speed at which this happens is fortunately, again, logarithmic to the injury or the disease that occurred within us. And so just open up the door and we're going to quickly find ourselves into that different future. I don't even want to speak after that, but I feel compelled to say, <laughs> even though it's we're far too late for any sort of linear change or conscious like forgiveness, just that shift in consciousness about what you guys, what, what Alex, you put in ordinary soil, or just the style of you know, everybody's doing the best they can with the awareness that they have. And if you're not aware of your, you know, if let's say you're running a Monsanto or whatever, until you're aware you're aware. So it's just removing that blame. And, and it's easier to remove blame when you realize that there's 4,000 years of ancestral wounding that's like running their DNA too, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, and then going, okay, you know, looking at the wars that are going on right now and, and less, you just, what you just said opened up more ability to have compassion in me for others as well as others that are different than me and then also a craving to embrace diversity and people that have different beliefs and you know and just yeah. it just kind of removes that blame and that vitriol and that othering and the polarization and it just even though you know it's just a shift in consciousness and the more people that can listen to this and have a just even a glimmer of a shift for a moment that can create a quantum leap i think yes I hope. it will it will that's on its way oh, thank you well, wow. anything well, to add there mr woodward uh, <laughs> you know i no. i think uh zach said it beautifully and i just i really believe you know like you were talking about um I think that no, you were talking. No, you were talking about it. This is all going all over the place. You were talking about the farmer who starts, uh, you know, makes a change and starts getting this different kind of life out of his field, right? Yes. And he starts searching that out more. And it's, I think, it's important to note that 
that is being reflected in, you know, literally in his gut microbiome as he's making those changes to the planet. He doesn't have to do anything to, to that, to his gut, right? Mm -hmm. He is making the change outside himself to, you know, restoring some biodiversity. It's coming right back to him. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what he's putting in is what he's getting back. And I think that that mirror is a really important thing to keep in mind. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's very, uh, it's all, I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds trite, but it's all connected, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, <laughs> yes. it really is. And so I think that the more that we do to work towards connecting to, na to nature as deeply as we can, you know, being seen by it, um, the better off we're going to feel individually and collectively, mm -hmm. you know, and you're totally right. You know, it takes away the, the need to blame or the need to condemn, you know, mm -hmm. the, the condemnation doesn't do anything, mm -hmm. you know, to anybody. It just, it, it doesn't, yeah. you know, and when you start like filling that reservoir, that love reservoir a little more, you know, and draining the blame one, I think really good things can happen, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it just, and it starts with us individually, right? And through connection. I think that that's, you know, for all of you listening to this, like the, the, the revolution that is gonna begin in your life and in our lives, be enriched is the connectivity of this community around our understanding of the nature within us and the way in which our food system really is this pivot point for society. Uh, either we all end up eating out of test tubes or we start dialing into a nutrient density that produces a biology within humans we've never seen before. And so this is an exciting pivot point and Alex has done something pretty amazing which is every dollar made from this book is, is going 100% back to the nonprofit Farmers Footprint, so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, but 100% of the proceeds of the book going back to Farmers Footprint uh, is a critical piece of the puzzle for us because the Farmers Footprint in, in, as an organization has realized that uh, there's, there's a famous quote that we feel like we're living into, which is humans are not made of cells, but we're made of stories. Mm. And uh, this is a story of where we begin again as humanity. And so f as you dive into this book, you'll be a supporting farmers who print through the, through the book, but you're also going to start to become connected to an awareness. And it's that connected awareness that makes each of us more intelligent, much we start expressing more of nature within us, therefore more beauty and, and intelligence comes out. And so uh, like going into the ocean, this book is going to take you into an immersive experiences. You're going to see things of yourself in here that you didn't know was in there because it turns out that 100% of you listening to this thing are genetically tied directly to farmland. Your ancestors farmed, period. I guarantee it because we all grew our own food up to so recently. 40% mm. uh, of our food was still being grown in our backyard gardens of 1945, and you put, go back another couple of generations, we all grew all of our food, at least 80% of it out of our backyard gardens. And so you will find yourself tied into a memory of the strength, resilience, and capacity of your family line as you dig into this book, and you're gonna find unexpected understandings of yourself as you dig through these farmer stories. And I think you're gonna also leave with the desire to connect to a farmer. And uh, I hope that's the outcome, is that this, this holiday season, you realize how disconnected you've become from that soil and food system. And you go to the farmer's market, you meet a farmer, instead of just buying their tomatoes, you ask them about their journey. Like, where are you at the journey of connectivity? Or have you been, do you feel connected? Do you feel seen? how can we make you feel more understood and seen? Can we come out to your farm? Can we see what you're doing there? Can we understand where this carrot comes from? Um, the more we do that to the farmer, the more we're going to do that to ourselves because the most hidden people on this planet right now are the food producers. They are invisible to us because it is slave labor and we don't want to see the slaves. 
and it's been food systems been built on slave labor for thousands and thousands of years. We fought wars so that we could get slaves, so that they would grow our food. Egypt, Babylon, all of these ancient civilizations—they were already using slave labor for this, and we now use fancier terms like migrant labor and all these things that are just as exploitive and, and disempowering as, as the old slave methods used to be. But also the big chemical farmer has become that slave as well. They are slave to a commodities market they have no control over. The, and the industry of chemical agriculture owns them. Uh, the banks own their farm now for the amount of money they've borrowed so they could buy the chemicals. And so the only people getting enriched really are, are those few pockets of abstract wealth that are allowing an abstract society to pour all their energy towards them. And so the farmer is going to teach you something about reality that you and your children come from. And the biggest gift you can give your children ultimately is, is growing that garden in the backyard, growing that one basil plant if that's all you can handle in the window. But grow something and let that kid love it because that plant is going to feel the kid coming home from school. And that plant will see the child walking into the home. And you may not be able to see that child because all you see when you look at that child is your own wounds, your own insecurities, your own disappointments in yourself. But the plant will see the beauty of the child, and the child will see the beauty of the plant, whether it be subconscious or not. And so grow something of nature within the homes that you create, and then tie back into this greater community. We'd welcome you at farmersfootprint.us if you're there, .org.au in Australia. Dot NZ in New Zealand, <laughs> dot UK in the UK or uh, the EU. So get engaged in one of our farmers' footprints around the world, and and start to understand that you are the the, the investor in that future food system. Whew. Thank you both so much, guys. That is a lot to digest. I mm -hmm. hope you have a healthy microbiome. But now we have steps on how to make it healthier. Um, Please, everybody, I've never asked this of my audience, but everybody order the book, Ordinary Soil by Alex Woodard. Woodard? Yep, you got it. All right. The other W sneaks in there all the time. I'm sorry, I, I think I said that. Yeah. And look, let there be light. Oh, yeah, right. um, grow plants in your home and go be seen by nature. These are the calls to action. Love you all. Thank you for listening to this just beautiful piece of wisdom from you gentlemen, Alex and Zach. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for Kelly, having us all. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. And oh yeah, farmers footprints. Dot wherever. Dot wherever you are. Uh, all right. Be well, guys. Thank you for listening to the Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. And make sure you hit the follow button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. And please rate and review us so that we can grow and reach more people. Thanks so much and be well. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.